Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. I'm joined today by the co-founders of Escalate. You can find out more about Escalate at EscalateUSA.com. I'm joined today by Sienna Daniel and Sean Siegel. Welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. It's great to have both of you. We always begin by getting our guests' origin stories. And since there's two of you, we'll have to sort out who goes first and what you want to talk about. But I'd love to hear from each of you, you know, your background in the learning space. And I think that should lead us into a conversation about what you're trying to do at Escalate. Sounds great. I can start us off. This is Sienna. I was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. And so, yes, I am a Buckeye. Very proud of of the Ohio State University. Right. Uh, But when I was in elementary school, my parents moved our family from a community that looked and felt very much like us. So it was predominantly black, low to middle income. And they moved us to a community that was all white, very wealthy, that had a free public education. And they felt fairly confident that doors would be opened for my sisters and me that they knew otherwise would not have been. Hmm. Fast forward, they were correct. All three of us went on to college and to grad school. Mm. I got my MBA, worked in corporate roles for a few years and just felt really unfulfilled. Mm. So I knew at that point that I wanted to find a way to do something with my life that would move things towards changing some of the systems in the U.S. that, you know, traditionally hold back historically marginalized populations. Mm -hmm. And so I started that transition in my career with Teach for America. I taught in Houston, Texas for two years and then went back to Ohio and started to dive deeper into the nonprofit workforce space, Mm -hmm. which is actually how Sean and I met. Mm -hmm. So the second organization that I worked for was a national nonprofit and I was overseeing the work that was being done in the state of Ohio for the organization. And Sean was on the national team. And Mm -hmm. so we um, had the opportunity, great fortune, to collaborate on a few projects. Mm -hmm. And then Sean, maybe pick up from there. Yeah, sounds great. So this is actually the third time Sienna and I have worked together. So we're in this for the long haul now. Obviously, I have a really different background and and origin story than Sienna. But I think where we overlap uh, is I also had a, a focus on equity from a pretty early age. And that also manifested itself for me by joining Teach for America. Mm. So I taught on the Texas-Mexico border for a couple of years and then in Miami, Florida for a few more years. And, you know, honestly, Mike, I loved teaching. I loved being in the classroom. I think I was pretty good at it. But I just got more and more frustrated by what I saw as the effects of multi-generational poverty Mm. on my students and their families and how little I felt like I could actually impact that in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And so 15 years ago, I started thinking about how I could try to do exactly what Sienna said, change systems. And I came to believe that actually getting people into jobs where they can make more money, make enough money to support their families, like Mm -hmm. that was the way to drive systems change. Mm -hmm. And that's become my life's work and Sienna's life's work. And that's what, what brought us here. So I did that by helping lead and grow national nonprofit organizations for the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most recently. Sienna and I were part of the founding executive team of Generation USA, a nonprofit started by McKinsey. Mm-hmm. So I was the first person hired to be CEO there full time. And I asked Sienna to come join me and build our business development team. And, you know, we were there for a little over four years and we grew it 
pretty quickly. Like we were at $25 million in annual revenue by the time we left. Mm-hmm. But even with the rapid growth, we just really came to believe that we were never going to hit the scale that would actually drive systems change in the nonprofit space. Mm-hmm. And so a year ago, we left and uh, decided to launch Escalate. And that's what brings us here today. Right. We'll get into Escalate in a bit, but can you just describe the workforce development space, the category, like what's going on there? What do people mean by it? Because it, it's kind of a a wide ranging uh, concept. And then maybe we could zero in on the area that, that y'all are focused on. Yeah. So I would jump in because I love talking about the workforce development space. So look, I think people define it in a lot of different ways. Like in the tech space, in the startup space, we talk about the future of work and, and what's coming next. In the nonprofit space, there is, you know, the mission-driven work of taking people who the educational system has failed and figuring out how to get them into better jobs. And so there a lot, it's talked about like the K through 13, like what happens after 12th grade and where people go. Right. And I think at, at Generation, you know, we were in a place that straddled the for-profit and nonprofit where we were running boot camps. There are for-profit boot camps and there are great nonprofit boot camps, but it's about getting people into to better jobs. Mm-hmm. I think where CNN and I landed with Escalate was knowing that, you know, companies often say publicly that they want to do the right thing. They want to hire diverse candidates. They want to diversify their talent pool. They want to hire for skills and not degrees. Like that's huge right now. Like yeah. that's the buzzword. In the end, companies really want to do whatever it takes to make more profit. And that's sort of the full stuff. Mm-hmm. And so what we're trying to do with Escalate is figure out how do we help companies be more profitable in a way that we can still do really impactful work. Right. And I guess that's where, you know, there's a cost around churn. There's a cost around not retaining good employees. There's a cost around a widening skill gap that, you know, is maybe the next area to focus on, you know, like what types of skills and programs you're developing, you know, who you're targeting and what that might help us help the rest of us know about what you see on the horizon, you know, in terms of skills and future jobs. Sienna, can you pick up there? Yeah, absolutely. So I think just to touch on first, the first comment that you made was just the cost of churn and and turnover, which I just, there's two figures that I think are really important. The first is that in the retail industry alone, companies, enterprise companies spend over $40 billion a year in turnover. Mm. And unfortunately for a lot of those companies, they don't really know how much they're spending. So they have a budget for the year for how much they can spend, but that's often surpassed within the first or second quarter of the year. Mm-hmm. The second is that they get to that, um, that number because the average cost to lose and replace, so every time a frontline worker leaves and has to be replaced is about $12,000. Mm. If you think about them leaving, you know, two or three times a year, a role being turned over, you're looking at twenty-four dollars to $36,000 that they're spending that I think, again, is often not really, really well accounted for. Mm-hmm. Um, the worker is gone and they have to get somebody to replace it. So they just do whatever it takes to get someone in there. Right, right. So for us, I think that's part of what we knew we could come in and help companies with is saving a lot of money on that turnover costs. And at the same time, focusing on these frontline workers and the skills that they need and that they're interested in to get them into jobs that that are going to help them to, you know, better sustain themselves and their families. And so the great thing is that because Sean and I have spent so much time 
in the workforce space doing, you know, upskilling and reskilling and boot camps. Uh, we know that there are a lot of opportunities in just about every industry because almost every industry has frontline workers. So mm-hmm. we know that and we have experience in healthcare and hospitality in retail, food and beverage, skilled trades, warehousing, you know, transportation, you name it, there are opportunities. The one thing that we know that these individuals almost always need in terms of specific skills are foundational skills. And by that, I mean like essential skills. So some people call them soft skills, just some of those professional you know, skills that people often don't get, as Sean said, like you're not always going to get that in K through 12. You often don't get it in K through 12. So you get out of there and you don't go into higher, you know, like college or or community college, you may not get that. So you're going to work and you haven't actually ever been taught those skills. So that's one piece that we know that everyone needs. Mm -hmm. I think the other is, quite frankly, and this kind of gets to some of the AI stuff that I, I know you'll talk about, is just foundational IT skills. So some of those really basic IT skills that individuals need at this point to be able to, you know, move up within within these companies. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting to think even about the frontline worker where, you know, that job is constantly changing, you know, in some ways changing more than other types of jobs, even if you think about the disruptions in the last few years, just how we think about space, how we think about regulations and policies, like it's all been turned over multiple times. There's a lot of retraining, reskilling just to keep up in the frontline position. And then the thing that I thought was really interesting about what you're doing is that you're also focusing on pathways up from there, where, you know, some of the conversations I've had on the show have been about like apprenticeships and getting that first good job. It's also like just getting that job. And then understanding that a career can go somewhere, really, regardless of where you begin. This is also where the idea of middle skills, I think, starts to come into play. Can you build on what I'm putting out there? Yeah, I'll start by just saying, you know, Mike, we know that there are two main reasons frontline workers leave and turnover. One is they lack the safety net, which I'd love to talk about at some point during this because we're pretty passionate about it. But the other that hits right on what you're talking about is... They just don't see a path to advancement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're leaving to get 25 cents an hour more at the store across the street or five more hours a week because they need something to better be able to support themselves and their family. Mm-hmm. The Harvard Business School, Joe Fuller, put out a paper called Building from the Bottom Up that said, you know, 76% of frontline workers would stay if they just saw the path to advance. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing at Asplate is we're providing that path. We know that people can go from being a cashier and that they have skills, you know, cashier is a very customer service facing role and we can build on those skills and help them either upskill into roles in management or reskill into the middle skill roles that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I know Sienna, you spent a ton of time talking to the employers about those middle skill jobs. So I'll shut up and let you tell about that. Yes. And just to kind of step back really briefly in the work that Sean and I did in our past job or most recent job. We spent a lot of time training folks in the last year for roles within IT. So we had done a lot of research and we knew that, especially in the U.S., there are a ton of middle-skilled IT positions available. Mm-hmm. Most of those jobs start, you know, somewhere between fifty dollars and $70,000 a year. So if I'm coming out of college, I have a four-year degree and I have a degree in computer science, 
I can go wherever I want and probably make about $100,000. So there's no way I'm going to be interested in a $50,000 a year role. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, what happens is those jobs sit unfilled. The company cannot find folks to do the work. So it ends up kind of falling on some of the higher skilled positions to just get it done. But in the meantime, they don't have a path for these frontline workers in their company mm -hmm. to go frontline worker into a $50,000 a year role. So they right. don't, don't get filled. Mm -hmm. What I found and what Sean and I found in the first, you know, six, seven months of doing work with Escalate was that those fifty dollars to $70,000 a year middle skill roles go far beyond IT. Every company has them. A lot of them sit unfilled. Many of them are managerial positions, assistant store manager, mm -hmm. store manager trainee, recruitment roles, sales, you name it, they're there. And they require some skills, some training, but there's no path to get individuals from the unskilled frontline role to that specific role. And again, folks on the outside aren't interested because right. make more money elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to me how it seems like around skills, like there's a willingness and awareness that it's the right way to go. Maybe this is where AI comes in, but there's just not enough transparency around them. And people don't know how to get from point A to point B. And particularly in large organizations, you know, it does feel like there is that aspiration to go skill space, but really a lack of awareness of how to do it. It's almost like you need to have skills transparency first and then be able to map those pathways and make them available to people. But I'd love to hear a little more of your thinking around what's the state of play currently around, you know, how skills enabled are our workforces and, you know, how can some of the stuff you're working on at Escalate help? Yeah, I, I mean, Mike, I think the issue here is in the U.S. specifically, we need a paradigm shift. You, you've had guests on that have talked about apprenticeships and it, like it just, even after doing this work for 20 years, it blows my mind how apprenticeships can be so ingrained in Europe and so effective. And you can see that in the UK, you can graduate with a 12th grade diploma and have a really successful career in finance. Right. Uh, it's just the norm. And here we have almost no examples of that. There are so few. It's like... The ones that everyone in the workforce system goes to are, well, you know, hospitality is great because you can start in housekeeping and move to be a general manager. Right. Yes, that is great. But we need to do that in every industry. Mm -hmm. And so what you're saying with skills, yes, like these companies are making announcements and they want to do it. I think at the end, they're risk averse. It goes back to the profit driver. Like mm -hmm. until they see that it's possible legitimately the role Sienna was just talking about, we've heard over and over again, they view them as unfillable. Mm. Either outsource it or have their senior, like overseas outsource it or have their senior staff burn out because they're doing this rather than take the risk of actually moving a cashier up into a cybersecurity role. Right. We have to do is show that it's possible. And I think our operating theory for that is we're not talking about it. We're going to go in and pitch to them that we're all about retention. We'll help you keep your frontline workers for 12 months mm -hmm. because that affects the bottom line. And then for lack of a better word, we're going in through the back door. Like while we get those frontline workers for 12 months, we're giving them the skills and then we're showing the employer, hey, now this is no risk for you. Mm -hmm. This person has worked for you for 12 months. You know, they're a good employee. I now have given them an industry recognized credential, which 
you usually use to hire, but you just haven't been able to find the people mm. in this role. Let us show you that it's, it's doable. And that's how we're trying to get to that transparency. You have to show employers it's possible for them to believe. Right. You want to just touch on the safety net note that you were hitting on earlier? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. So we come from the nonprofit space, right? And in the nonprofit space, we were able to, because of philanthropy, like provide a pretty robust safety net through mentors and coaches and wraparound supports. And when we came to the for-profit space and, you know, we're now a venture funded company, we've been pitching to venture capitalists and we heard over and over again, safety net's not scalable, wraparound supports aren't scalable, they're too expensive. Not right. So frontline workers don't get fired for absenteeism because they don't care about work. They get fired because they lack the safety net that the three of us talking right now, we all have. Right. If car breaks down, we have resources to be able to still get to work. They don't. Mm -hmm. It's actually not that expensive to fix. So the first automation we built for our product is basically chatbot, a push notification that you're in our program, like you get a text every day. Hey, Mike, are you scheduled to go to work today? Mm. You are. Great. Are you going? Oh, no, you're not. We're really sorry to hear that. Mm. Is it because of transportation, childcare, health, or other? Mm -hmm. If you text back, like my car broke down, so I can't go to work, our system will actually auto-generate you an Uber code or a Lyft code and say, well, now you can get to and from work today. The catch is you have to click here and schedule a meeting with one of our coaches so we can talk about how you get to work. Mm -hmm. This plays out with healthcare too. People get fired because they missed three days in a row. And the company policy is after three days, you have to have a doctor's note. Right. Have a doctor. And they're not going to spend the money to urgent care, which is, you know, $250 just to walk in the door. Right. So they get a note when they can just, again, cross the street and get another job. Mm -hmm. Buy them access to a telehealth provider so they can get a note and keep their current job. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that can be built really cost-effectively and scalably that will help keep people in their jobs while they're upskilling for these better jobs. Yeah, I love it. And at the same time, you know, it's 2023, so uh, we got to talk about AI and both in the collective popular culture nowadays, there is this idea that the robot overlords are coming, robots are going to take our jobs, but you're really an interesting organization in that you're almost flipping that script, which is what I find interesting is, you know, if these AI tools are really empowering to humans, how can we point them at the right problems and what kind of benefits might we see from those integrations? Sienna, maybe you could pick up a little more on how AI is factoring into your thinking and your platform and the stuff that you're working on. Yeah, definitely. So I think one thing that, you know, and we have heard obviously from a handful of other folks also just about the threat of AI and worrying about, you know, it taking over some of the jobs that some of the frontline workers that we're targeting are currently in. And I think one thing that, you know, Sean and I have talked about is just that the work that I, that we project that AI will take over is the work that most people don't, nobody wants to do. Right. So it's the stuff that it's okay for it to take over. Right. Repetitive, boring, and dangerous, I think, were the three adjectives. That's a nice, it's a nice set. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so I think, you know, for us, it's really about making sure that through the work that we're doing, that we are giving these individuals the right skills and tools that they need, which is part of the reason we focus so much on those foundational IT skills also, because that is like, we know that when some of that stuff gets automated, they have to be able to do some of the really basic 
things that require you to be familiar with technology. And, you know, outside of cell phones and sometimes computers, basic computer skill word processing, they haven't learned much beyond that. And so making sure that they are familiar and set up for success with some of those things so that the threat of AI isn't so big um, right. for individuals. Right. Because it does feel like the way it's being characterized, which I think is right, is that there will be, you know, winners and losers in terms of AI enablement uh, in terms of the human workforce. And that's where I think in a future vision, this is where the future work piece comes into play. You know, your frontline workers are AI enabled. It's already happening in healthcare as, you know, one space. They're technology enabled, but increasingly it will be AI enabled. And, you know, how do you do that equipping? How do you do that tooling? And to your point, Sean, I think around a paradigm shift, it does require a different way of thinking about your workforce and thinking about the potential of humans as learners, humans who relearn, unlearn in more flexible, adaptable ways than any of the artificial intelligences that are out there. I was at a, a dinner party post-COVID. We do that again. And it was a bunch of academics and AI came up and there was a lot of gnashing of teeth. Like it's going to be our downfall. I'm so scared. And I felt like I was coming at it from a practitioner lens because I was like, wait, what? I'm so excited about this. Right. Because if you think about the populations we're trying to serve and what AI unlocks for us, like you'd start thinking about individualized learning and education and looking at what you were just saying, human aptitude. Like we're already building our platform so that when people are coming in, we know that, you know, the first three months are about the essential skills. Sienna has brought up a couple of times, but using that three months for essential skills also lets us start doing diagnostics and letting us see like, where's your aptitude? Where should you be going? We know what jobs are open within your company. How do we put you towards the right one? Mm -hmm. And that can get really non-cost effective and non-scalable if you have to hire a different instructor for every one of those different things. But okay. what we do is start using AI. So our platform does have chatbots where once our live staff figures out, hey, learners get stuck here and this is how we unstick them. Mm -hmm. Well, no, we take what our live instructors did and we put that into a, a language model. And now instead of having a live instructor do it, 75 to 90% of times people need support, our products, our AI enabled product can give that support, which means people can learn online seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about a frontline population, they don't know their schedule 24 hours out. So right. if you're asking them to go sit in a community college campus or go even to an online boot camp that's scheduled at this time, they're going to end up missing class and then they're going to end up dropping out. AI enables us to, to change that. That's the paradigm shift for learning. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I'm getting futuristic already. I'm starting to think about how, you know, we'll have more personal connections, more of that feeling of support you were describing earlier around that safety net through some of these new tools, you know, these chatbots can help people feel connected, develop that sense of belonging. But there is a foundation of just digital readiness is what, you know, Pew talks about where a lot of people sort of distance themselves from tech. And particularly if the frontline work is more really about human to human contact, folks who gravitate there may think of themselves as non-technical. How do you break through some of that resistance, you know, if we're talking about equity and trying to reach people who maybe haven't felt as connected to their 
career path or educational journey. How do you think we can start breaking through there? Yeah, I can start and then Sean, feel free to jump in. But part of what Sean and I know just from the years that we've spent working with frontline population, whether it's through education or in workforce, um, upskilling and reskilling, is that these individuals suffer from what is called imposter syndrome. So they do not see themselves progressing into roles like a web developer or you know, a sales representative or, I mean, any of those middle school jobs, a lot of them, they can't see themselves in those roles. And so part of what we knew was really important in the work that we were building with Escalate or the model that we were building with Escalate was to make sure that the individuals or the employees are put into cohorts. So with the cohort model, it's not just about saying like, Mike, you're part of the, you know, A1 cohort. There are 49 other individuals in there and good luck to you. It's also about like, how are we making sure that we are building community within these cohorts and that they are interacting with their peers, even though it's asynchronous, they're still in the same chat groups where if I get stuck on a certain thing or I have a question about something through the learning, I can post that, you know, and then I'm getting responses from my peers that look and feel and are experiencing the same things that I'm experiencing daily, just builds this confidence that they don't have to be able to see themselves moving into these and progressing into different roles and start to understand and see where their skills really are. So it's not just about us doing surveys or talking to them and helping them to identify pathways and skills that they would actually be good at, but also having, you know, some seated questions and chats within their cohorts that really allow them to feel like they're part of something and part of something with other individuals, 49 other individuals mm -hmm. that have much the same life experience that they have had. And they are all progressing in the same direction towards careers that they never would have imagined would be part of, you know, their path. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because it does touch on why storytelling and representation are important as well in terms of how you're portraying what success looks like and who can be successful and what types of trajectories, I guess, are out there for folks. Because I feel like lots of times, you know, if they don't see it, it's hard to become it. You know, looking ahead, where do y'all see things going? Like within workforce development and some of the efforts that you're doing, it's clearly with a vision for, you know, how we might see some of the more foundational systemic change that you're describing. This is the future casting part of the conversation. You know, if things go well, what problems do we avoid? What opportunities are, are kind of opened up to us? Can you paint that picture a little bit for us? Absolutely. I was reading the, the New York Times this morning and there were a couple of articles on what's happened with the economy over the last, you know, few years and was the great resignation real and there's a rise in labor movements. And, you know, I think what all of those are pointing to from where Sienna and I said is we're at the beginning of what a lot of people are calling the forever labor shortage. Demographics are destiny. Boomers are retiring. There's a much lower birth rate. We have throttled immigration in the country, which means there's just fewer workers around. Mm -hmm. That could be a huge economic catastrophe. I think Sienna and I see it as a huge opportunity mm. because traditionally there have been a whole lot of people who have been left out of the labor market or just forcefully held to the bottom rungs. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's not going to be possible for companies to do anymore because of this forever labor shortage. Mm -hmm. 
And so this is the moment where, you know, we're building Escalade so that we can be training hundreds of thousands of workers a year. Uh, and that's important to us because you do this for a living. Like when we tell people that, what is it? 40% of Americans have a college degree. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at black and Latino Americans, it's way less. Mm-hmm. So right now we're basically saying to 60% of America, you can't participate in the labor force in a way where you can earn a decent wage. Yeah. That's what's going to change. My wife does executive search for a living and works a lot with higher ed. And it's a robust conversation at dinner where I'm like, higher ed is broken and it's time to be disruptive. And like, this is the moment to do it because when you're leaving 60% of the population out or I saw on LinkedIn the other day, for every two people that have a college degree, there's one person that's walking around with college debt that doesn't have a degree. Right. It's broken. The biggest thing I want to get across is that the 60% of Americans that don't have college degrees, the 80% of people of color that don't have college degrees, they do have the skills and aptitude to be doing jobs that pay 60 to 80 to 100 to $120,000 a year. And if companies don't realize that, they're not going to be able to fill their roles in a way that causes them to fail. Yeah. I like to talk about the new hotness on the show, like emerging trends that are, you know, kind of hot off the presses, this just in, around skills. It does seem like certain skills heat up and cool down, like prompt engineer had a hot minute and now folks are already kind of saying, well, you know, we'll, we'll prompt engineering be around in a few years. You know, you talked a little bit about digital fluency, like basic digital competency and some of those durable skills. You also mentioned cybersecurity. Are there certain broader domains out there that you think will be on the rise in the say next five plus years where if folks are trying to look at a particular space, are there any spaces out there that you think will be particularly interesting, both in terms of the disruptions that are happening, but skills gaps, upskilling opportunities, particularly for middle-skilled workers? So I'll mention two, and then I'm sure Sean has Thoughts of others also. One is cybersecurity, which you mentioned. I think that that's a huge one. And it has been, you know, for the last few years, it's it's been a conversation point and is only going to grow. The other is honestly healthcare. So if you think about some of the, you know, nursing roles, those types of positions, there's a massive, massive need. And a lot of the conversations that Sean and I have had with companies, some that are retailers, but have a healthcare arm to their business. Even another organization that we've spoken with that does skilling for teachers. And they told us that we just had this conversation last week that they've had so many individuals coming to them, other companies coming to them, asking them if they know anything about how to help folks go from frontline worker into those middle skill healthcare roles. Mm -hmm. There's just not a very clear path for that to happen, but there is a massive, massive need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even beyond nursing, which you mentioned, I've heard it called like allied health or, you know, whatever you would call the broader category, home health technicians yeah. and aides. And like, there is a, an infrastructure. And then that is another place where the humans and the technology have to work side by side to be effective. And it's also a place where, you know, the other element that I think you're touching on here is that regardless of your degree status, like 100% of the workforce is going to need to be reskilling at much faster rates nowadays, you know? And then what infrastructure do organizations have to get serious about their learning and skills development programs? 
We're getting closer to time, but uh, you know we still have plenty uh, and plenty to chew on. Sean, looks like you have something to say. I had a slightly different tack to that. The last question, which is, yeah. but you were you hit on it with the lifelong skilling and lifelong reskilling. So at our last uh, job, we partnered a lot with institutions of traditional higher ed, especially community colleges. And one of the eye-opening moments for me was when we approached them and said, we want to help you train cloud or cloud, cloud practitioners. And like, it's such a great example, like, because there was a moment not that many years ago where cloud doesn't exist as a job path. Right. And then all of a sudden it was cloud exists in a way that Google and AWS are actually funneling millions of dollars into training mm -hmm. because there's not enough people who know how to do this for this whole new thing that they just created. Right. Traditional higher ed was like, okay, well, that curriculum was great. Now we have to put this through a faculty council that takes six to 12 months. And then it's, we have to find the instructors and like, that's not how the economy works anymore. Right. And so I think when you're asking like, what are the high growth things? What we have to be thinking of is how do we make learning more modular? How do we leverage things like AI to be able to do individualized learning? Mm -hmm. How do we change the impetus where it's like, companies have to realize that they can't rely on external training providers anymore for their internal talent needs. They need to be investing in it. And like, we don't have the right federal policies in place. You know, section 127, the $5,000, $5,250 of tax deductible tuition, that number hasn't changed since it was implemented 40 years ago. In the UK, one of the reasons apprenticeships are so big is because the government basically pays the company, you know, 30,000 pounds to like take an apprentice. Right. The government needs to catch up. Short-term Pell has been stuck in Congress forever. Mm -hmm. uh, and people are like, well, I'm worried about high quality programs. I'm worried about this. What we're doing right now isn't working. Mm -hmm. Unless we create learning that follows a learner through their whole life, through the employment cycle, is modular, lets people react, we're going to keep failing. Mm. I'm talking with Sean Siegel and Sienna Daniel from Escalade, EscalateUSA.com. Really interesting company. You know, we got this far. I always like to ask guests, you know, where they find inspiration, what they see out there in the world that's got their wheels turning. Is there anything we haven't talked about so far that either of you would like to bring to our listeners? Anything out there that captures your attention, you think is important for an audience thinking about the future of education. You could say like, you know, it's not Game of Thrones anymore. I don't know what you would say, like in terms of, uh, you know, I, would, I just started watching The Bear, you know, I'm catching up on Hulu. It's pretty amazing. It could be anything. It could be nothing too. I could edit this part out, but I wanted to give you a chance. Because otherwise all we talk about is in the education lane. Well, first I can't resist talking about The Bear as a Chicago native. I'm addicted to that show. Yeah. And, you know, the Bear is actually a lot about the future of work. It's about like helping people find their passions. Mm -hmm. And in The Bear, there's reskilling and upskilling and pivoting. Yeah. And I mean, that's actually, that's what we're talking about, right? But I think the big message from us, and so my plug, Mike, is we're new, but when the next couple of weeks, we're going to announce contracts to train a thousand people for a really large company. 250 people for another really large company. Like we're ready to do this mm -hmm. and ready to partner with more companies because the key message from the bear and from our work and from everywhere is we don't care if you have a degree, like we see human potential. Mm -hmm. And at this point, companies need to realize that unlocking human potential is the only way that they're going to fill their talent needs. Mm -hmm. Do you want to partner with them on that? But I think whether it's us or awesome nonprofit boot camps 
or helping higher ed change and be more adaptive, like what we all have to be focused on is the labor market has shifted. Workers have more power today than they've had in the last 30 years. And that's not going to go away, even though big companies want it to. Mm. So figure out the way you're going to invest, because if you don't, you're going to be out of business. Yeah. And Sienna, I always like to ask for advice for people out there. Like you've gotten to an interesting point in your career where you've made a few uh, pivots really, you know, based on, you know, where you're finding fulfillment and what's really helping you, you know, continue to grow and flourish. You know, I'd love to hear from you a little bit on advice, things you maybe learned to get to this point and, you know, suggestions perhaps for folks who are listening around things to follow, things to stay away from, whatever you think makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I would say that sometimes when I reflect on where I am, I sit and think, you know, I'm really not sure how I got (laughs) to this place, especially when I think about my family. And, you know, I grew up with about 22 cousins. We're all around the same age. My dad had six siblings and they all we all lived in the same area, spent a lot of time together, living together when one of us, you know, didn't have a home. We stayed with the other, vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I still see a lot of my cousins stuck in the cycle of poverty and and in frontline roles and searching for avenues and ways to get into a more family sustaining, you know, pay range. And Mm -hmm. I think that's part of what drives me. I think every day is just thinking about what they are still trying to find. And quite frankly, there's not a lot of people that are really set up to help them find that. And That I think for advice for others is just basically, you know, find something that really inspires you and drives you. That's part of who you are, whether it's from your past or your family or an experience you've had. But that's what I have held on to and have, you know, really pushed myself to find ways to help others because I know that there is a way just because it's not clearly written. You know, Escalate is kind of first in this space for what we're doing. But Sean and I knew that from all the work that we had done on the nonprofit side, that there are ways to get around some of the barriers that sit there. And that's kind of a roundabout way of just saying that I think it's really important to not give up and not give in to the way that the system is set up and know that it was set at some point by someone. Doesn't mean that it can't be changed to have a significant impact on millions of Americans that are looking for avenues and ways to improve themselves and their lives. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem like there is a, a crisis in motivation, perhaps in hope out there too, you know, where how do you actually inspire your workforce? How do you get them to trust you and to actually believe that you are ultimately their advocate and you have their best interests at heart? We're talking about a talent crisis in America and how organizations like Escalate are trying to get out ahead of it, EscalateUSA.com. We're approaching the conclusion here. I always like to give guests a chance for concluding thoughts, parting shots as we wrap up. Open forum here for either or both of you to conclude. I always hammer the same thing. If you think that your frontline workforce is turning over because they don't want to work, you are amazingly privileged and also amazingly dumb because these folks need a paycheck, full stop. And if they leave your store, it's because they got a better 25 cents an hour somewhere else. And it's because you're not trying to keep them. You're not using worker voice. You're not listening. You're not asking. Start by doing that. And when you figure out what they need, call Escalate because we know how to help. Amazing stuff here today with Sienna Daniel and 
Sean Siegel, the co-founders of Escalate, EscalateUSA.com. It's been uh, wonderful having some time with you. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks, Link. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please subscribe, tell your friends, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.